Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner and Momenta Partners with another episode of our Edge podcast. And today our guest is Rick Bellotta, who is kind of a one of the one of the founders of the uh, industrial IoT platform market. Uh, he was a founder of Lighthammer and ThingWorks. He's a technologist and an entrepreneur, uh, and also uh, I think one of the most insightful uh, commenters or, or critics of uh, of technology and markets today. Uh, Rick, it's it's great to have you. Thanks, Ed. Pleasure to be here. So first, I'd love to get us a, a bit of a. Uh, uh, a bit of a look into your background, and and wanted to ask you know what what has really shaped your view of of, of the markets and technology, and uh, you know kind of what what has brought you to uh, to where you are. Sure, obviously a bit of a moving target, but um, uh, my my first gig out of college was actually in the steel industry, um, working in steel plant operations, heat treating uh, basically armor plate for military vehicles. But when you spend time in the plant floor, um, you pretty quickly learn that the exception is the rule. Uh, you learn how the real world works pretty quickly. You know, I'm a few months out of school and I have 15 union steel workers reporting to me. It's a <laughs> it's an interesting life experience. But um, what it, what also worked out well is this company was super progressive in uh, the way they applied technology. It was called Luke. The company was Luke and Steel in southeastern Pennsylvania. It was about the same time that the PC was starting to come out, and um, because I was a you know, fresh out of college kid, anything technology related, even in my role in steel plant operations, got thrown my way. So we invested a lot of money in automation. Um, I, I really got intrigued by that. Um, I spent like the next couple of years while doing my day job, going to our uh, our county library, signing out software, bought a PC, kind of taught myself technology, taught myself to code. Um, and it, it, the hook was set. Um, then the company uh, was making big investments in uh, its own industrial IT organization. Uh, a lot of, if you remember back in the day, DECVAC stuff, VMS, RSX, all that crazy stuff. But the things we were able to accomplish then with the technology we had at our disposal were mind-blowing. We had GUIs, we had you know, MES systems, we had you know complex data collection. We had lots of stuff going on then. Um, and I learned learned a lot during those years. Um, also, you know how to help justify projects, uh, those kinds of things. Long story short, uh, I jumped out of there, went into the systems integration world for a number of years, um, and that's where I started getting more exposure to package software. You know, how do you apply building blocks uh, from companies like Gainolution and Wonderware and US Data and others, uh, OSI Soft. Um, so that that became my career in a everything from pet food plants to candy plants to automotive plants, you name it. Uh, I probably spent some time in them, uh, and that's where I uh, I also got my first exposure to a company called Wonderware. Uh, Ken, you know, Ken Forster and I have a have a history there. We both, uh, in fact, that's where we met. Um, but one of the more progressive companies, not only in terms of technology, um, in fact, I've heard some stats that they're in about 50% of the world's plants these days. 
which is kind of mind-blowing. But nevertheless, very um, ahead of their time uh, in terms of user experience, developer experience, and just as importantly, the way they marketed themselves. It was a larger-than-life image. We used to have um, some fairly uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek ads with people in underwear. You know, this is not Wonderwear. We used to uh, spend you know, a million, million and a half dollars a year uh, on a party that uh, at a time we were doing about 18 million in revenue. So it was a different culture, but all about creating uh, excitement around you know, what you had. And that, that influenced me greatly kind of as I went forward in my career as well. So I had different roles there, uh, sales, uh, key account sales for the Northeast US, uh, technical roles. We did a, number, a lot of uh, merger and acquisition. So I was deal, I dealt with a lot of that product integration. Uh, and then my last stint, I actually had three stints there. Uh, my last one there was a chief technology officer. Uh, the, the interesting side note is both times I left Wonderwear previously, my wife was pregnant within about a month of me leaving. So I was a little bit nervous the third time I left, <laughs> but uh, dodged a bullet, so to speak. Um, but when I left Wonderwear the last time, it was um, it, it was seeing this opportunity kind of above all of the information systems and sensors and controllers that were out there in our you know factories utilities and infrastructure uh, no one was tying those together and it seemed like a sort of a natural problem that to be solved and that's where lighthammer came from so i like to jokingly think of that as kind of the intranets of things right we're typically you know behind the corporate firewall um, and the evolution was pretty simple it started with um and I'm a believer in this in broader IFT applications as well. Start with visibility, right? People, you know, let's let's not forget that people are still the sensors, decision makers, and actuators in a lot of business processes. So if we can use technology to give them some kind of superpowers, the ability to you know see things they couldn't see before, uh, to assimilate data from all these different places. Um, that's that's kind of what how Lighthammer started was unified visibility to all the stuff going on in these industrial environments and resonated super well with customers, extracted big value, um, and then it evolved to kind of becoming a platform for integration with their other um, uh, line of business processes, whether in the plant floor, ERP, all that kind of stuff. Um, started to get land some you know some very large global customers leveraging our technology. Got on SAP's roadmap or, or uh, uh, radar screen, and in 2005 we were acquired by SAP. Um, and I uh, I spent the next few years in uh, product management roles, but the the coolest role I took then was actually in SAP research. So I had a um, very incredibly smart team in Dresden. I spent a lot of time working with them on future factory initiatives, kind of envisioning, you know, what's the next gen of, of all this stuff look like? And we had an initiative that was called Real World Awareness. Um, think of it like uh, what what could happen to any kind of business process if you could inform it with real data from the physical world and if you could actuate things in the physical world to close the loop on that. So we looked at retail, healthcare, public safety and security, manufacturing. Uh, once again, the light bulb went on that, you know, there's just a gap here. It's too hard. People are building and having to stitch together, you know, pieces, parts uh, at too low a level to make it cost effective or broadly deployable. And that was the genesis of what became ThingWorks. Uh, but um, you know, the, so the basic concepts then were 
all right, take, let's take all this learning we applied from very mission critical kind of applications in the industrial environment, very heterogeneous environments where um, you, you've got a mixed bag of controllers and sensors and systems and so on. Um, and also the other big takeaway from both of those was the importance of legacy and brownfield. You just you, you don't take stuff out. Right. So if you're trying to make a building smart or a factory smart or connect uh, existing products, you have to consider the impact of what's already out there and, and leverage that. So that informed a lot of the architecture of both uh, ThingWorks and, um, uh, and Lighthammer. And then, uh, as you know, ThingWorks grew you know, extremely rapidly um, in, from 2000, basically 2010 uh, up to the end of 2013. We we're just about to do our, our C round, uh, you know, expand our global sales force. Uh, and PTC uh, had had, had a, uh, their own internal initiative to build an IoT platform, came down and visited with us and decided, you know, hey, we can get you know, a, a one and a half to two year jump start on the market by, by working with ThingWorks. Um, and the rest is history. So we uh, became <laughs> part of the PTC family. And obviously, they've, they've um, been building that, you know, thing works not just as a product, but as a brand. Uh, some of the stuff they've brought in around Kepware and AI and, and, and um, augmented reality have turned it into a really fascinating platform. And I'm, you know, I'm very proud of uh, kind of the legacy of what they've done there. Um, needed to, you know, I've been, I had been doing, um, startup stuff for, I guess this, at this point, almost 20 years, uh, you know, 17 years, decided I wanted to, you know, need a little break. And um, that's when my wife and I bought a 155-year-old house. I switched my jobs from technology to carpenter and plumber and electrician and, you know, you name it. Um, and that was a really good uh, project for a couple of years. Finally got that done. And there's an opportunity vacuum. Like, what am I going to do now? I got plenty of you know side pursuits to get me in trouble, but um, uh, so this is this is uh, it, I kind of looking for something interesting to do, and and uh, I ended up um, doing some uh, advisory board work for startups, uh, part time gig with Microsoft. We'll talk about a little later, um, and uh, so that's basically what's filling my time now. But as you can kind of see, it's a continuum from this mission critical things blow up and you know people get hurt the environment gets damaged if the systems don't work up to um this very i'm a believer in this very heterogeneous gotta stitch these connected products and stuff into other business processes and data sources anyway um we're all you know we're all byproducts of our past Absolutely. Could you could you talk about the, the some of the early challenges that uh, that you faced when you were looking to instrument and uh, I would say modernize or actually bring industrial equipment into an information era? I mean, what were some of the what were some of the initial either technological or organizational or business challenges that you faced early on and and uh, and and how you were able to find solutions that you know that ultimately would lead to uh, you know, to be able to 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 package some of the you know the the you know, the insights and best practices into uh, into packaged software. For sure, I mean, I'll I'll go back to the fact that it's sort of a continuum, right? Um, from connectivity to visibility to integration. Uh, so clearly, the, the that last foot connectivity is a must. And to your point, I mean, at the time, 
A lot of these systems were, you know, very proprietary interfaces, technically odd serial connections, and you know, you name it, we encountered it. Um, but but that also, I think, was a seminal moment for me in in real, you know, from a um, product and technology point of view, realizing the importance of abstraction, abstracting away these these de- devices. In essence, what we might call a digital twin today. But thinking, you know, how do we um, abstract away what they are and how you interact with them and what that you know actual connectivity might be and put an API or a veneer on top of it that allowed you to um, leverage them you know and, and inter and weave them together into in new ways. Um, so yeah, I would say probably just that last foot of connectivity. Um, security interestingly wasn't that big an issue at the time because virtually none of these systems had any security. Security was, if you're not physically plugged into it, you're not talking to it. Um, and I think uh, at the time as well, very, very few um, industrial environments were connected to the general internet. So that attack surface didn't exist. Uh, so largely, like I joked earlier, it was kind of an intranet of things problem. In terms of the, the people dynamics, I would say almost, you know, I can't think of too many exceptions to this. Once people saw the benefits of expanded visibility, um, where new eye, you know, the people in quality could see what was going on in operations, the service technicians could see the state of equipment, you know, in the electrical infrastructure. Um, it just that aspect of it, people were bought in. They got it. I remember um, Advanced Manufacturing Research, who's uh, now part of Gartner, uh, issued a um, issued a report. I'm going to guess, you know, probably. 2003-2004, but the space that we had created was called Enterprise Manufacturing Intelligence, and they they wrote this piece that said this is one of the rare no-brainer investments. And they'd spoken with a lot of companies that um, it just that again, just that first wave of visibility and people collaborating together to solve problems had a massive ROI. So it's kind of like the you know the the low-hanging fruit situation. A lot of value just from that first step. But uh, so I, I would say the cultural challenges at the time were fairly minimal. How did you translate that to really a much broader platform when when Lighthammer became part of SAP? Uh, I mean, SAP is you know has a, a really broad reach, and of course they're you know they have this expertise in in you know business process reengineering and and you know back office. But uh, you know were, were, was there uh, a need to adapt you know the messaging or or, or go to market? Uh, approach that you you'd had as a as a startup once you were inside SAP and how did you uh, you know how, how did you how did you manage to to propagate the sure. you know the value prop through through a larger organization like SAP? Great question and you know it's interesting like any large if you think about most enterprise software companies every year they you know they roll out a number of products and offerings they acquire products and offerings. And you're not just in a in a battle for mind share of the customer. You're you're in a battle for mind share of the sales force, right? Your own internal sales force. Everything goes through a fashion phase. Uh, manufacturing, you know, was very hot. First year, um, I think you get the exact number. It was like a seven to ten x bump in in revenues. I mean, and we were we were really hitting our stride at Lighthammer. What got their attention and the sales force's attention was the multiplier effect. And let me elaborate on that a little bit. If you think about most companies, um, they've got you know somewhere between four and ten blue collar workers for every white collar or back office uh, worker. 
those were typically very underserved uh, in terms of software, um, obviously license revenue, but different solutions were needed, very different experiences, different functionality. Also, the processes that those people uh, performed on a day-to-day basis were way, way more variable than, um, than you know, purchasing and, and uh, accounting and so on. So it required um, a sales team that was capable of uh, selling more of a solution sell as opposed to, hey, this is the best procurement software you can get. And a lot of, you know, I, I work with a lot of companies even nowadays that realize you need to, um, it, when it's that type of a sell, uh, you need uh, specialist salespeople. Long story short, uh, we kind of took the best of our go-to-market organization at Lighthammer, the amplifier effect and the size and, and, and reach and the uh, manufacturing presence of SAP and really, really uh, got it done. I mean, you'd have to ask the SAP folks, uh, you know, what their pers- perspective is, but I, I would argue it's probably been one of the more successful acquisitions in terms of, you know, return on on uh what they've paid for and invested in the company. And it's still, much to my surprise, still a very viable product today. You know, obviously, um, uh, in, in a, when you're uh, the, the, a company like SAP, we invested in very important things that a small company might not uh, around localization, accessibility, you know, going after a global market. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, it was that amplifier effect and a lot of um, uh, a, a vacuum of, you know, uns- underserved demand and need. And expanding on that, you know, as you as you looked at the genesis of or the idea behind ThingWorks, you know, what was the what was the white space that inspired you to you know to to go out and you know and 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 start a company again? I mean, after you'd really created a you know a business that was so successfully integrated into, you know, really a, you know, a global, you know, one of the glo- you know, top global software companies in the world, uh, you know, what was, what, what were they missing and what was the, you know, what did you see as, as, as the new opportunity that, that gave birth to the genesis of, of a new company? Well, what, what's interesting also is that we, um, uh, it wasn't for lack of trying to get it started within the umbrella of a large organization, but it is, it's, it's just, Fundamentally difficult for many companies to organically um, uh, innovate is not the right word. They're an extremely innovative company, but that sort of startup um, there is a different model of everything from how you develop, how you deploy. You know, long story short, um, we gave it a go and explored different ways to kind of entrepreneur it, and it became pretty clear that you know that wasn't uh, a likely outcome. So logistically, hey, you know, let's get the band back together. The folks, uh, the business, the partners that I had at Lighthammer uh, brought some you know, new team members in. But the fundamental gap was the same. It was just too hard for people to build applications. And if you think a thing works, I mean, a lot of people thought of us as a top to bottom IoT platform, which we were. And, we, you know, we had those capabilities. But ultimately, at least in my pers- perspective, um, the, the primary value we were creating was um, building that application on top of this very, very heterogeneous blend of stuff um, and actually enabling you to you know, do stuff 10x faster. That was always the goal. How can we reduce friction of deploying this stuff? All the pieces and parts you know, were evolving. They were there. Uh, the technology components weren't really the issue. It's how do you put them all together to, in a cost-effective way to do something useful. So... Um, 
you know, an interesting spin on that too is uh, one of the um, one of my mentors, you know, and, and a guy I respect greatly. Uh, when I was at Wonderwear, a guy named Phil Huber um, was instrumental in in that whole design experience. How a developer built applications there influenced me greatly. And when we started ThingWorks, uh, we uh, you know we needed to grow our team, and I was lucky enough to kind of have a wrinkle in time where he and a couple very talented people were available uh, in Southern California. And uh, you know, basically, was allowed to leverage their experience um, in building that developer experience. Uh, you know, add them to the team, and just absolutely critical to kind of how how ThingWorks involved. So it was the ability to cherry pick the very best in the industry. That's you know hard to do, kind of organically in a big company. Um, but also, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's easier the second time. I mean, you kind of know the pitfalls. Uh, fundraising's easier. Um, so, you know, a lot of those aspects, it was just a matter of identifying the gap that was, how do we make it? And this is our, you know, our driving mantra. How do we make it 10x easier and cheaper? And how do we make the easy stuff easy and the hard stuff possible? That was basically the mantra for the business. Well, that's a, and that's a kind of dovetails nicely into the concept of the massive transformational purpose or the, uh, you know, the, the exponential impact when you're, you know, when you are talking about a, a, a really disruptive uh, approach or uh, which I wouldn't necessarily categorize, you know, a, an IOT platform as being disruptive, but in, in a sense of, you know, being able to unlock value that was, uh, that was that essentially was was uh, you know untapped in so many of these or organizations with uh, critical capital assets. I mean, this you had applied a fairly you know innovative approach. Could you could you talk about the you know, driving business value from the the enabling technology? I mean, I think a lot of people understand the uh, the waves of evolution that you know that that are you know that have benefited. Uh, innovation, whether it be you know the falling costs of, of processing and storage and uh, increased connectivity, uh, cloud computing, of course. But you know, how, how did you go about deciding and defining, deciding on and defining you know the 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 business problems that you were going to solve and and proving that out so that so that it could you could see that it could become a you know really a a, a real platform uh, model that would give rise to replicable you know replicable solutions. Yeah, good question. So, uh, two two dimensions to that. One is from a, a value creation perspective, um, and and it also com- combined with the go to market approach, was that you know if you've just invented the flying car uh, or the flux capacitor and you're going out there and try and sell it, you're in an evangelical mode, right? You're trying. No one has budget for that. No one you know fully understands what its business impact's going to be. So we have this concept we always call bridge functionality. And bridge functionality is what what are people used to buying or at least have some awareness of that's a component of what we do that we can, you know, get in there, set the hook, deliver value, and then convince them they also have, you know, that they have the, the flying car and the advanced functionality waiting for them when they're ready. And, you know, that pattern worked at Lighthammer with remote visibility. And then uh, in in uh, the ThingWorks world, it was same kind of thing: multi-system uh, visibility interaction. Um, so kind of like you know, hey, I, I get it. This is sort of a specialist kind of BI solution. Um, it turned out to be obviously much much more. But um, so first, you know, hey, what, what are you used to buying? Where can you get low-hanging uh, value? And it came down again to visibility and integration. 
But similarly, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a uh, cynic skeptic's not the right word, but I don't think there really is such a thing as the IoT per se. And by that, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just one set of capabilities, this, this end connectivity uh, that, and, and edge intelligence that we have um, at our disposal now. But the companies that are really doing things of value, it's deeply integrated into their other business processes, into their you know, customers and partners and suppliers. Um, I, I, you know, I get the, the consumer highly linear connector, you know, connect your sensor, very simple apps. I'm not sure that's an area where companies like, you know, like, like mine delivered a lot of value. Right. Um, but in the, you know, in the, um, Kind of, if you fast forward a few years, now companies are looking to do a lot of the, the basic blocking and tackling, device management, massive data ingest, uh, so you know, secure connectivity and provisioning. That's kind of become the purvey of the big cloud vendors, uh, and you know the the which isn't surprising to me. Um, so you know, again, the focus on the application tier. And the uniqueness that each and every company had. I mean, my contention is that no two applications are the same. Even a company that builds a fleet tracking app or a you know remote remote uh, service or remote management app, um, there's always a level of customization that's needed into their other processes and data sources or interacting with other parts of their value chain. And so, this tooling-based approach, um, we had to we did have to evangelize that a little bit early. But I think um, to your point also is, and I, I uh, you know, I advise uh, all startups to do the same, is um, work intimately and closely with your first customers to help them along this journey. But, you know, the quid pro quo for that is ask that customer to share what it's done for them. Because when you're early in a company's life, um, those success stories and the value stories and concrete ROI are gold. You know, they're worth more than any money you can raise from venture capitalists. So, um, you know, that aspect to it, collaboratively learning, iterating, um, refining your story. And truth is, your customers are going to tell you what your value prop is. You know, you can have some ideas and you think what it's going to be, but it's that, you know, first 10 or 15 customers that, that help you clarify that vision. I'd like to turn the turn the focus to operating within hype cycles. I think when ThingWorks came on the scene, that was just a, just about the time that the term IoT hit the public consciousness, and uh, you saw a number of large companies, uh, you know, go to market, rebrand their strategies, and uh, put enormous. Yeah, uh, 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 I would say that, you know, the, the forecasts of devices were of billions of devices in the world were hitting. Essentially, I mean, this, this classic Gartner hype cycle, uh, you know, came into play. And, and over the past several years, we've seen a bit of, uh, you know, not not true disillusionment, but but certainly, you know, initial growth expectations had to be tempered, you know, because of the the nature of, of hype. And would love to get your perspective in navigating, you know, expectations and execution, you know, throughout the early stages of a hype cycle. And, and you know, how do you uh, how do you orient a, you know, a, a business so that it remains on a on a firm foundation, you know, throughout what can be, you know, a lot of misperceptions or disconnects uh, sure. in, in, in the public markets or in public perception. Sure. And, you know, there's a couple of dimensions to that. One is um, I, I always felt like I, had, I should have sent Amazon gift cards to the CMOs at IBM, Cisco and others. I mean, they basically did our advertising for us. 
created massive awareness and demand of the internet. They all had different names for it, but at least it got it in the collective consciousness um, earlier than we ever could have, right? I mean, e- evangelical uh, work is hard. It's expensive. Um, it's difficult. So the fact that a, a lot of you know, larger companies were doing that and, and the, the um, reality of their offerings lagged behind left a you know, massive opportunity for us. Second was you had to deliver on that, right? I mean, and I, I go back to this fact that um, I don't. I would say as a company, we only we viewed it as just a continuum. It was a continuum from all, just as kind of what we did at Lighthammer was a continuum from what we did in industrial automation, human machine interface, and SCADA. You know, what we did at ThingWork was a continuum of that for that class of problems and a new class of problems. So we never really viewed it as this massive discontinuity. Um, and, and in our conversations with customers, we focused on, you know, very clear ways they could apply it and get value and so on, rather than, you know, this is the going to you know, change your world forever. And it can. It's an empowering tool for, for the, the companies that are true innovators. But um, innovation, I mean, I, I, this is, again, one of these kind of life lessons I've learned. I sat in um, so many uh of these kind of uh, vendor awards, uh, you know, all the the you go to you, you go to sh- industry events and shows, and a vendor and a customer get on stage and they talk about how awesome it was and how much benefit they got. When you you kind of buttonhole the customer afterwards and pull them aside and ask them a few questions, you find that the real innovative things that they did were not in typically in that vendor's platform. They were around it. They were the things that they envisioned and they created, um, whether they're new processes, new technology, stitching stuff together. That light bulb went off for me early that you have to empower your customers to innovate. You're not like throwing them, you know, here's, here's, the, here's the magic beans and you just water them and innovation will happen. It's empowering their teams to look at problems, look at opportunities in new ways, and so that technology and application development was not the friction point. Um, so that was kind of how, you know, at least how we we viewed it from that perspective. Yeah, and I, I would I would also just make the observation that as a you know in developing a platform, right, you're you're creating this uh, sub foundation uh, that enables that that innovation, right? I mean, you're not you're not forcing uh, you're not forcing business process or or established yeah. best process, uh, you know, particularly in a market that's just starting to evolve. You know, what in terms of what would we call industrial IoT? I mean, it's one thing to to automate payroll or or HR, but it, you know, in these emerging markets, uh, it's it's a very different animal. I mean, and and you know, as you've watched the uh, the industry evolve over the past few years, I mean, are, are is there anything that that has surprised you in terms of how the uh, your your initial vision of 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 ThingWorks has uh, you know, has has really has has evolved and, and developed, and certainly in the, with the rest of the market, giving rise to hundreds of, well, you know, I'll say, platforms in, you know, in parent in you know in quotation marks um, that you had a lot of companies that were you know approaching the you know the problem by trying to become platforms rather than you know rather than applications. I mean, how do you how how do you view the, the the state of the market now versus you know your original view and and ultimately would love to get your thoughts on the you know on the IoT platform market? Sure. No problem. 
Um, well, it's interesting, uh, and my business partner, uh, Russ Fidel, can, can confirm this statement, but I remember meeting with um, Zia Youssef, who I knew from uh, SAP days. At the time, he was he's with BCG now, but he was uh, CEO of a company called Streetline, which was doing, you know, in in uh, in street parking centers, you could, you know, find open spots or, you know, really real application of IoT technology. Long story short, you know, all our collateral and our stuff talked about what an awesome platform we had. And he just sort of chuckled and said, no, you're not a platform when, when you say you're a platform. It's when there's a, a, you know, the customers define that you are in fact a platform and the community and the, and the ecosystem building around you. And that stuck with us, you know, the importance of building that kind of ecosystem play as way uh, as well, that the, you know, the Lego blocks that customers had to build from needed to be not just from us, uh, pre-integrated with all this, you know, all this other stuff. But, um, you know, those dynamics uh, definitely affected us quite a bit. Um, and, and understanding the, you know, the uh, what is a platform, right? And the importance going back to this heterogeneity, heterogeneity, accepting that. That's just the way of the world. And you have to be able to accommodate that from a platform perspective. But I would claim that you know, in IoT today, there really is no such thing um, as a as a single IoT platform. You know, we've got platforms that are uh, at, for edge. We've got platforms for the uh, that are optimized for device management, data ingress, things like that. We've got platforms for um, AI and, and analytics in the IoT space. We've got platforms that are focused on uh, built at the application tier, building the actual applications and rules and, and visualization and uh, you know, those are those are all very different uh, disciplines, very different you know architectures, very different needs. Um, I'm, I, I almost think it's great that they're all iterating uh, independently. Unfortunately, it kind of you know it does kind of put some uh, return to the customer, some effort to tie those together. But you, know, you can see ecosystem forming uh, around the bigger cloud vendors, around you know platform uh, companies like PTC and so on. But ultimately, um, it's this, you know, the, the, there are many types of platforms for the IoT, and it's, it's somewhat use case specific, knowing which ones you need to select and focus on uh, and leverage together. In fact, I had customers, numerous customers, that had multiple IoT platforms, in many cases, uh, inc- inclusive of their own. I mean, some of the world's largest companies have built their own IoT platforms that have millions, if not tens of millions of devices connected. We don't talk about that as an industry much, but they're out there. And while they wanted to move to, you know, more uh, uh, commercial products, uh, you don't just, you you just don't retrofit uh, 10,000 medical devices. It doesn't happen. So long story short, um, it was just rethinking that this tiering of platforms and what functionality needed to be provided at each level and how you needed meta platforms. I mean, that's one thing I'm very proud of with ThingWorks is that it was designed from the get-go to sit on top of other people's um, uh, device management and and, and uh, device connectivity and data ingress platforms. While again, we had the need and we had a very awesome offering top to bottom, we recognize that customers have you know this mixed bag of stuff that that we need to accommodate to be able to enable them to solve their problems. And uh, so that idea that this meta platform sitting on top of other platforms, uh, I, I always felt was you know, one of the one of the key value props of what we built.
if if you turn the turn the the the, the focus to the rapid evolution of you know ai and machine learning you know how do you, how does how does that impact the you know the the potential power and application of of the of these technologies these 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 sure. connective technologies going forward i mean what what's your what's your what's your sense on your, whether expectations may be aligned to reality and 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 some of the potential ahead well, there's, I, you know, I think we, we as an industry and certainly the trade press t- tends to lump AI and ML and all that stuff into one big bucket. And in reality, I kind of break it up into multiples. Um, all have their own unique value. So we think of AI and ML as, as techniques for um, new modalities for interaction. Classic examples are, you know, voice agents, Alexa, Cortana, you know, Siri, things like that. So leveraging AI to find new ways to interact with things. Um, second is, uh, and one that I find very, very exciting is what I call meta-sensing. And that's where you're using audio, imagery, you know, other um, sources of input as kind of meta-sensors applying AI and ML algorithms to um, turn them into some other insight. Traffic patterns, foot traffic, uh, thermal analysis of a, of a part coming out of a piece of equipment. Uh, coming out of a paint booth, you know, all these kinds of things. I've um, seen some fascinating stuff with, uh, with audio as well. It's just catching on. There's a, a company, um, um, it's an interesting company with a, a deaf founder that um, well, a product called Wave.io that uh, he recognized that, yeah, voice is interesting, but um, if, if you're hearing impaired, uh, how valuable is it to know that a smoke alarm is going off or that someone's knocking on the door or a baby's crying or the water's still running? So how uh, they built some clever technology to um, uh, basically do sound synthesis and turn that into a meaningful event. We've seen a lot with imagery, with drones, with fixed cameras, with um, cameras in public spaces. I think we're just at the start of that. Uh, democratizing that, making that easier is a massive opportunity. Um, another one is you know, just uh, uh, anomaly detection, right? We see a lot of work underway to characterize how uh, equipment, devices, operator processes operate normally, and then use those, you know, those patterns to help us detect when something isn't right. Little side note there, I think um, the obsession is perhaps too much on the devices and assets and not enough on the processes. There's interestingly a lot of the same tools we have can be applied to the data from the processes, not from the equipment. So they may span multiple pieces of equipment and people and so on. That's to me a big growth area. And then just kind of you know applying uh, machine learning and AI for that kind of offline insight generation. You're seeing patterns in correlated you know, data and events that uh, either for um, sheer size of the data, uh, inability to bring those data streams together, humans weren't able to do so. So broadly, I mean, I probably missed something, but the, I, I do chunk it up into a bunch of different areas that can all evolve independently. Yeah, that's a, that's a helpful way of looking at the uh... You know, this range of technologies, and I think that 
uh, I haven't I haven't heard it expressed that way, but it's uh, it, it maps very logically to some of the value props. Um, I actually wanted to turn the, the topic to another emerging technology, which you've uh, you've been pretty pretty vocal <laughs> on, which is which is blockchain. And yeah. uh, I know you've been um, you know you've been vocally uh, and quite correctly skeptical of you know the enormous hype. But I'd love kind of love to get your assessment and your view of you know what what happened. You know what's real? Where where have people missed the boat? And what's uh, you know what is actually real that you think may come out of a lot of this innovation and there's a you know i know i i uh have a kind of a cynical outlook it's really um i would say i like to say i'm bullish in the long term and pukish in the short term <laughs> meaning it just i mean it sickens me sometimes how yeah. great opportunities uh in a lot of technologies just get so overhyped and the um customer expectations can never be met too much, and, and it can be counterproductive when too much money flows into a space too early. Um, hell, I would make the argument we saw a little bit of that with IoT 1.0, right? Remember, RFID was going to be on everything, right? Absolutely, absolutely. That's a great example, right? And this is, you know, and, and what's funny is it's a. I used to joke it's a rare meme reboot, right? It's you know, IoT now means something very different than when Kevin Ashton coined it, but nevertheless. Um, Back to you know blockchain, the, the idea of multi-party data data ownership. You know, no single party owns it. Uh, immutable record keeping, um, you know, appropriate levels of security and encryption and data sharing across the value chain. Those are all massively valuable things. Um, and and I think too many people conflate cryptocurrencies with you know some of the other applications for blockchain. We're already seeing that. Those, you know, the, the technology requirements are so dramatically different, proof of work kind of things and the energy demands of crypto could never apply in, in an IoT you know, scenario. So we're already seeing different technologies for um, being, being created to, uh, to address some of those issues. I also am skeptical about, you know, the, the replicated nature of a, of a blockchain um, being, uh, you know, the, the devices are going to play a role. But I just don't see them as as the heavyweight active nodes on the network. Um, we also see a lot of the you know the use cases um, and early pilots where all of the nodes in the blockchain are all in the same vendor's cloud and owned by the same company. And that you know to me that kind of defeats the the multi-party data ownership problem potentially. Um, we'll see how that evolves. The other thing is that you know at its core, there's so many interesting things uh, we, we talk about. And you read, you know, you read the books and the literature that say, "Oh, this will be an integral in managing your healthcare record." Well, I agree, there's potential there, but today's blockchain implementations are not designed to store an MRI or you know any kind of rich data. Uh, it could, there's there's hacks and there's you know early implementation. Uh, underlying a lot of the implementations, they're very limited in the way you can query them, the way you can manage granular permissions. So, I think. There's a met, there's a great great opportunity in the spirit of what we talk about here. Again, kind of this common, almost a throwback to the old. Um, remember the the buzz with exchanges. A number. Oh of yeah, yeah, the trading exchanges, the Ariba and Commerce One, and and exactly. all that. Yeah, so it's kind of a, a a throwback to that maybe with some some new and more modern. Crypto's got its own like cryptocurrencies. I mean, that's to me that's a that's a different space, um, but. 
Nevertheless, I, I do think we're going to see some exciting innovation. It's going to take time. And we're going to have to start, maybe step back and look at the problems people are trying to solve and design the technologies um, to do that. And, and not, you know, and not pretend, right? Uh, if, if, if the right tool for the job is a blockchain leather ledger with references to a traditional data store or a blob data store or whatever, great. That's it is. And we're seeing, you know, there's some architectural work uh, in those areas. But it's the it's this you know silver bullet magic beans kind of mindset. As you know, I have just a visceral <laughs> visceral response to. Um, nevertheless, I, I really am bullish of the the overarching concepts and benefits, and I think that's important. I think the idea, and I do. I've been talking about kind of end to end what I called extended PLM, right? Cradle to grave view of everything about a product from the day the parts were procured and made to how it was built, how it was distributed, serviced, used. Uh, and, you know, the ability to, to share that across a value chain is, is massively valuable. Unfortunately, value chains are becoming even more and more complex. It's not uncommon for you know, the brand owner of the product not to be the one that designed it, not the one that built it, not the one that shipped it, not the one that serviced it. Uh, and, and you and, and so um, this whole idea of multi-party data sharing and data commerce represents, I think, one of the next big spaces. Um, it's an area I've, you know, I've looked at a few times. Whether blockchain and, and its iterations solve that problem for us, I'm hopeful. But that, you know, that whole space is, is indeed um, and, and it's not just uh, data commerce. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like an API commerce. But anyway, um, exciting time. Uh, let's just be pragmatic. Well, you know, where I blockchain, autonomous vehicles, all exciting technologies. It could be super transformational. Let's just be pragmatic in how we spin them, and when we tell customers they're ready for broad adoption. Well, that's that's right. It's so critical, right? Is is managing expectations. I think the, you know, the big challenge, of course, with uh, technologies that get overhyped is you get this you know massive influx of capital, and we saw that I, when I first started on Wall Street. One of the uh, one of the first things that I was involved in was writing initiation reports on Ariba and Commerce One and and C and I too. And one of the things we were doing was applying a traditional discounted cash flow analysis to these companies to try to justify you know, some upside to the stock where they were trading. And this was early 2000. And of course, they were trading at ridiculous valuations and people were using measures like uh, you know, comparable multiples of revenues. So it's you know, your, your classic, you know, well, my dog's worth a million dollars because I traded it for two half a million dollar cats. And when you'd run these discounted cash valuations, you'd have to actually have to get to a like a $40 billion run rate in 10 years for Ariba to justify where it was trading at, you know, 10 years earlier. And of course, I mean, Ariba has survived and it's now a, you know, a very uh, critical part of, of SAP's ecosystem, but it, you know, Nowhere, nowhere near what people thought, and of course, it always takes a lot longer for visions to to become reality. But I'm 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 very much with you there, and we're seeing that. Of course, the you know the internet bubble uh, 2.0 as it as it has it played out in crypto is is unfolding in about a third the time or even a quarter the time. So we're getting that uh, you know we're getting that yeah uh, you know, we're cleaning things out as uh, a, a lot more quickly to get to the you know to the real foundation. Well, and that, 
you know, I, I, it's funny, a little side uh, anecdote. I, my uh, home, my first home purchasing experience had to be delayed about five years because of uh, uh, investing in I2 on margin. <laughs> so lesson learned, right? Oh, <laughs> I can yeah. I, I I feel the pain. Yeah, that's uh, those <laughs> those were tough times. You know what? Again, what are the takeaways? Do your homework. I like to inform you know my my opinions and and actions on data. I mean, it's, it's, it's increasingly difficult to separate good data from bad data, but you know that's a lesson learned from that experience. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about you know the move to to a big company. I mean, you're uh, you've been an entrepreneur and worked in a lot of different uh, you know different types of of, of companies. But uh, you know, talk a little bit about you know what what had attracted you about working with Microsoft. You know, obviously all the all in mindset from top to bottom. Uh, Satya, Bill, you know, Bill, Bill Gates. Um, really see the value of this um, this connectivity and how it can transform just about everything in our lives. A very vocal and verbal commitment to uh, investment over the next few years. And quite frankly, you know, I'm because of the background, my background in industrial automation um, and, and the, the ubiquity of Microsoft in that space, I've always appreciated the market leverage and, and, and power and potential uh, that Microsoft had in this space. And so I, um, you know, as I said, I kind of had this opportunity vacuum, reached out to, uh, to, to Sam George, who runs the Azure IoT team. And, you know, he graciously offered me an opportunity to uh, help them with their strategy. So I stay out of Philadelphia, out in Redmond, you know, occasionally. Um, unbelievably brilliant team. Uh, really some of, the, some of the brightest people I've worked with. Um, but they're, you know, they're a, a entrepreneurial business inside of Microsoft. There's a lot of aspects of the way we run that group that are very entrepreneurial. Um, so it's it's kind of the best of both worlds: the the reach and leverage uh, and, and um, resources of a, of a big co with the kind of agility. Let's cre- be creative. Let's focus on our customers. I mean, that's the part that gets me up every day. Is when customers do something awesome, that's that's totally my that's my energy source. Um, you know, very engaged with customers. It, it's an exciting time, and uh, you know it's it's one of the things I do. I do a couple of days a week uh, for that, and then uh, working with a lot of uh, a handful, I should say, of startups in and around uh, emerging technologies, robotics, uh, AI, uh, things like that. That's great. Sam George was a, was a uh, was a was a prior guest on the podcast, and he's a truly impressive guy, and and uh, you know an, an incredibly uh, eloquent advocate of connectivity and, and value from uh, from connected technologies. And and he's built really a, a, an extremely impressive team across the board. So uh, stay stay tuned. Exciting. Awesome. Continue no. to come. Looking forward to it. So I wanted to just look, you know, looking forward, I just ask a kind of a simple question. What are you optimistic about, most optimistic about? And, uh, you know, what are, what, are, what are some of the concerns that, that keep you up at night? You know, when we look at, uh, you know, as, as the market and the world are unfolding over the next several years. Yeah, primarily in and around the IoT. Uh, we would start there, but if, yeah. if, if you want to go more broadly, I think that's that's relevant too, right? Because it's everything's connected. Sure. I mean, you know, uh, just I think we've covered a lot of the challenges that are. Um, can can we still get another five to ten x easy button? 
You know, is there is there some transformational? I still think it's too hard to build applications. Our building blocks have gotten better, cheaper, faster, you know, richer. I still think there's a, a step change improvement on how we build applications. And it, and I think we forget that there are, just like we talked about applications of AI, we talk about applications in the IoT. There are analytics, there are human interaction, there are process integration and rules. You know, there's all kinds of stuff um, that might, and there's, there's um, de- developer-oriented stuff versus casual user. So tra- transforming how people can continue to add value to all this stuff we put in place uh, and, and, you know, and bring that, uh, um, I think that's, that the tooling area is super important. Uh, democratizing AI and ML is a big problem. It's still too many propeller heads required, too intense. I mean, some of it's unavoidable. Data prep is grunt work. Uh, you know, just there's some stuff that um, we can do better. But uh, democratizing all of those kind of AI and ML technologies, I think, is a, a big opportunity. Uh, new modalities for interaction. You know, I applaud what, what Jim and uh, PTC have have been um, uh, evangelizing with kind of the the AR, the mixed reality experience. Um, maybe, you know, I, it's hard to guess what the adoption rate is going to be. Um, but I think there's every element of that from the uh, devices themselves to the tools we use to build applications are getting better and better. So hopefully we'll see, you know, some mainstreaming of that soon. Um, and, and all of the other pieces we talked about, like, you know, the, the just the, the hype disconnect. I'm just hoping that, um, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a return to sanity at some point. I do think also we're going to have a privacy backlash in the, in the not too distant future. We're already seeing, you know, bits of that in the in the social media world. But um, I don't know that uh, with all of the IoT, um, you know, sensors, cameras, things like that, or even in complex value chains, right? You may have seen some of the, the backlash in the ag community about who owns the data from farms, from seeds, from whatever. So the data privacy, data sharing, um, uh, those, those I think are going to be some some you know interesting challenges as we move forward, but overall, like I said, I just see IoT as this other new awesome tool in our toolbox. And for me, the the optimistic point of view is that there are so many bright people that if technologies were not their limitation, would do amazing things. You know, if tools were not their limitation, could do amazing things. And that's always been part of what I tried to help do is how can we democratize app creation so that more people can take their ideas and, and make them real or even just make them, uh, you know, pilots or whatever. That's that's valuable as well. Fail fast, uh, you know, succeed fast. Um, you know, so uh, I don't know. Maybe that's uh, I, I, I do believe that uh, we're going to see some progress there. Um, and we need to, you know, de-geek some of these technologies more and more and more. Absolutely. Well, it, 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 technology certainly uh, one of my thesis is that that over time they become more transparent as they become easier to use. And uh, but that that's a that's an evolutionary characteristic, I think, of of, of all technologies. Um, are there any interesting you know, smaller companies or or emerging technologies that you're you're keeping your eye on? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I, I won't put plugs in <laughs> specifically for uh, some of the. Uh, the companies I work with, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, some really innovative stuff in, um, uh, I guess I already did, although I have no fiduciary involvement with Wavia. I wish I did. I probably should. But um, that, that meta-sensing area is really exciting to me. Uh, I, you know, a company I'm working with does a little bit of that in the, in the uh, drone space, but it can be more broadly applied to any robotics scenario. That's very exciting. Um, simplifying that last foot of connectivity. Uh, there's some companies, you know, a company I work with in that space. I'm very excited about. I think there are also uh, there's a company I work with that's that's I I believe has actually delivered on the 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 claims of making AI and ML in uh, industrial processes easy. Um, I'm, I believe they've done it and they've shown you know some real promise at the early customers being there a week or two weeks and having, you know, amazing insights coming out. It's hard. It's really hard to do. Uh, but um, so that's an area where I think we're going to see increased democratization. Um, you know, other kind of maybe not small company stuff. I, I'm I'm starting to um, really get some, um, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for here? I'm, I'm excited about the potential of 5G, not for any of the reasons that we would have said two or three years ago. It's nothing to do with you know bandwidth and, and things like that, but there's some really interesting stuff that I think 5G is going to transform both industrial IoT and um, the broader IoT. So definitely keeping an eye on that. That's great. Uh, well, this has been an amazing conversation, Rick, and uh, I always like to uh, round out my my uh, podcasts with a a request for a recommendation that you might provide to uh, uh, you know to a colleague or friend. And I'm just wondering if you have anything you could you could share on that front. And this is like books or media or things that are interesting. Absolutely, any any anything that you would recommend. So two radically different ones, but there's kind of my go-tos. To um, one is a a book uh, from Jeff Hawkins. Uh, had the pleasure of meeting Jeff. Jeff was the uh, founder of Palm Computing, of course. Uh, did a lot of work. Um, he, he's, his real passion was like neuroscience. Uh, so through the Redwoods Neuroscience Institute, they formed a company called Numenta. Um, but he wrote a book called On Intelligence, which I think is kind of a must-read if you want to understand how the brain works. And um, and Numenta is doing some really interesting stuff in hierarchical temporal memory for a different you know, way on how we can uh, digitize uh, how the brain works. I believe we're, you know, I really believe we're taking the wrong, a lot of the wrong approaches today, uh, very digital approaches to an analog and chemical problem, a fuzzy problem. So um, anyway, that's a, that's a good read. Um, and a completely other end of the spectrum is uh, my wife turned me on to a book that I've, I've really enjoyed called The Book of Joy. And it's just a kind of a, uh, you know, a fascinating uh, blend of the Dalai Lama and uh, and Reverend Tutu getting together and talking about, you know, joy and happiness and what can, what can uh, uh, help get you through some of uh, our day to day challenges. Highly recommend entertaining read and uh, hopefully everybody will get some insights out of it.
Well, that, that's a great uh, recommendation. And, and of course, happiness is uh, a known uh, performance enhancer. Uh, <laughs> Sean Aker uh, wrote the book called The Happiness Advantage, uh, which is which has been recommended to me uh, by a couple of folks, too. So that's those are great recommendations. And, and, and anyway, Rick, it's it's been a pleasure uh, learning, you know, so much about your 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 background and experience and insights and and again I just want to um, to highlight again this has been Ed McGuire Insights Partner at Momenta Partners and our conversation has been with uh, Rick Bellata and Rick thank you once again for you know for taking the time to speak with us my pleasure Ed. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.